today on Ag News Daily. It sort of pencils out. The feedlots are in, are sort of on the cusp of penciling out or not penciling out. And, and honestly, it all comes back to whether or not they can get the packers to share the profitability. The packing side is extremely profitable right now. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy hashtag Market Monday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Karnash. And we've got a lot of good things going on today. We've got... The NCAA March Madness Tournament for all of our basketball fans out there. We are celebrating four years here on the podcast. So I have put in thousands of, not quite a thousand episodes uh, over the past four years. So that's been kind of fun to reflect back on. And we have a fantastic celebration for our four years with Naomi Bloom and Elaine Cub coming up for some market talk here in just a little while. You know, Delaney, I'm going to go ahead and just say, I don't want to talk about March Madness. We, Texas Tech, we lost to Arkansas. I know. So I'm a little bit butthurt, to be honest. Well, Ashton, I tell you what, I am as well, because now Texas Tech has lost, as well as Iowa lost just here earlier today before we started recording to Oregon, the Ducks. So both of my teams I was cheering for are now officially out. My brackets I've done are completely busted. So I don't know. This tournament has been really interesting to watch. If you like basketball, which honestly, basketball is probably my favorite sport to watch just because it's, I I think, got a lot of activity going on compared to like football and baseball and some of the other ones out there. But this one has been crazy. The amount of underdogs, quote unquote, that have upset, you know, some of the higher seeded teams. So it's been a fun one to watch, but my bracket's completely, completely done. I think it's quite funny. I've seen a couple of memes about how these Christian schools are coming and like really right. out. <laughs> and like Oral Roberts, Abilene Christian. And so I'm a part of like a Texas Tech alumni page and they were cracking jokes about how we didn't get beat by a Christian school. So we're still right with God. And it, it's just it's <laughs> kind of funny, but it's honestly this March Madness, 2021 March Madness uh, tournament. I couldn't think of the word there. It's it's a little bit crazy. I have to agree. It is. It is. But it's been fun to watch. Should be a good, good, you know, sweet 16 that we're going to hopefully see tightened up here shortly within the next day or so. But other than that, Ashton, when it comes to some ag news, what are you watching today? Well, Delaney, not too much is going on. We're kicking off National Ag Week today and tomorrow's actually a national ag day so i'm sure we'll have some great stuff to cover tomorrow but unfortunately today you know not kicking things off not kicking off national ag week you know on a high note for the national 4-h center the center is a 12 acre campus in chevy chase maryland and it's gone up for sale after 12 months of a pandemic driven vacancy The National 4-H Council President and CEO tells Brownfield Ag News that it was a difficult decision, but paying expenses on the center with no revenue through 2020 and 2021 is detrimental. It takes millions of dollars a year for 4-H to keep the center open and and safe. Um, So sustaining that is kind of um, a challenge. Of course, with it being the pandemic, they're not bringing in a whole lot of revenue and it's taking, you know, more to keep it open than, you know, it was it was worth, I guess. 
And so Sarangelo says that it was a long process. And in the end, donors confirmed their money would be better spent on the impact of 4-H programs instead of keeping the facility itself. She says that the National 4-H Council will remain in the Washington, D.C. area. And funds from the sale will help continue their mission and provide scholarships for members to attend national events. Sarangelo says that they are planning a virtual event for alumni and friends to celebrate and share memories at the campus that will serve as a way to preserve the center's history and a lift off point for future plans. So it's honestly quite a sad day for National 4-H. And I'm just hoping that things start to get better with the pandemic as we are seeing vaccines roll out. But honestly, I haven't been involved in 4-H since I was quite young. But it it's just a sad day, to be honest. Yeah, I saw that piece of news as well. Hopefully they get it sold to somebody who will be able to better utilize that space. But Ashley, I do have some good news on today's Market Monday episode. Looking at transportation, we've got what I would call a win if this deal does in fact go through. But Canadian Pacific Rail- Railway has agreed to acquire the Kansas City Southern in a merger which is valued at about $25 billion in stock and cash. Now, the reason this could be a big win is because if this is approved by the Surface Transportation Board, this would create the first rail network linking United States, Mexico, and Canada. A big deal because currently, you know, the railway systems we have have to do a little bit of uh, maneuvering, I suppose you could say, to get from Canada, the United States, and then Mexico. So this um, this merger, this acquisition would just make it a lot easier to get goods from one country to the other and would be very helpful, I think, with the USMCA agreement and bringing all three countries on better terms as far as transportation costs go. So we'll continue to keep an eye on this story. I don't know really what the next step is other than being signed off on by the Surface Transportation Board, but I I, I don't know what obstacles would be in place other than that one. So we will continue to see how this goes and uh, might be good, Ashton, at some point in the future here to get a, I don't know who we would talk to, an engineer, Army Corps of Engineers, uh, transportation folks. I'm not really sure exactly who we'd reach out to, but I know that this could uh, be very, very productive for hauling and shipping goods. That's honestly some amazing news, Delaney. Have you, I don't know if you have um, ever like ridden on a train or traveled by train, but I think, I don't know, it's just so interesting. And I feel like it would be really fun to to travel by train, although it, it would take some some time to kind of travel cross country. Right. And so I think this um, acquisition is more geared at not passenger trains, but more so cargo. So getting goods to and from, uh, I guess I don't know about the passenger aspect of it. Well, Delaney, I want to kick things over for my last bit of news today to Europe. The governments of Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic have agreed that intensifying hunting of a wild boar is needed to combat an outbreak of African swine fever among wild animals. Asian countries, of course, including China, have banned German pork imports 
Since September of 2020, after African swine fever was found in wild boar in East Germany, but not in farm animals. And there have been 845 African swine fever cases in wild boar close to the Polish border in the East German states of Brandenburg and Saxony, but again, none in farm animals. And African swine fever has been present in Poland since 2014 and the Czech Republic since 2017, with wild animals suspected to be crossing into Germany and spreading the disease. In a video conference, agriculture ministers from Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic agreed to do more hunting to combat the disease. Fencing has been built along the Polish border to prevent the spread of wild boar in cooperation with Poland, but there are still areas that need more protection. So they are ramping up the hunting of wild boars, kind of an effort to get rid of, I don't know if it'll, you know, honestly get rid of all these cases of African swine fever, but definitely trying to combat it and mitigate the spread as much as possible. It certainly sounds that way. Um, And Ashton, I don't know if you've seen this story yet. I, I don't know a whole lot about it. I just saw it today. But apparently Chinese authorities are investigating some dead pigs found near the Yellow River, which previously was the site of pig carcasses being dumped from African swine fever. It's uh, near Inner Mongolia section and along the country's northern border. And so they've now found hog carcasses dumped there again. They have not confirmed yet whether or not they are tested positive for African swine fever. And obviously these hogs are no longer alive, but I did see that come through today. I thought it was a a little bit odd, but I don't know a whole lot more about it other than that. And I didn't know if you'd seen anything yet, Ashton. No, I haven't, but I'm going to have to do some digging because that's interesting. They don't have an answer on, you know, who's dumping these carcasses or anything. Uh, No, not yet. They just said that they'll be investigating it. So Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much more than that. But let's see. Uh, Ashton, I know you have been sitting in on some or will be sitting on continued this week, some sessions from an ag policy session going on right now put on by AgriPulse. Have you learned anything exciting in these yet? I wouldn't say I've learned too much right now. They just kicked off the session earlier this morning. I've set in on three sessions, one of them being, you know, just some words from Tom Bilsack. Another one was how we are going to measure carbon credits and carbon sequestration. And then the other one that I sat in on is the opportunities and risks of the climate debate. Um, And it's been some pretty interesting stuff, but I'm going to wait and share that on the podcast. I believe we're going to share the um, how how we're going to measure measure carbon sequestration in the next two or so weeks, talking about, you know, technology on one of our Tech Tuesday episodes. So folks are just going to have to tune in to see a little bit more about what I have been able to listen to already. Yes, that will be great. I know carbon has been, a, like you said, a big portion of that discussion. So I, I think that's going to be of interest to quite a few folks on the podcast, Ashton. But one thing that is also of interest is commodity markets. What do you say we see where the markets left us today before we talk with Elaine and Naomi? Let's do it, Delaney. All right. Well, we saw corn pull back today. 
not too terribly bad in new crop, but definitely down pretty hard in the old crop. Kicking things off here in the May corn contract down eight and three quarters cents today to close at 549. The D's down three and a half cents to close at 468. Soybeans just slight moves to the upside today as the May contract up a penny and a quarter to close at 1417 and a half. November was actually down four cents today to close at 1216. Chicago wheat had some mixed trade today as the May contract closed a quarter of a cent higher to close at 627 and a quarter. The July unchanged on the day to close at 619 and a quarter. Hopping over to take a look at livestock today, mostly strength across the livestock complex as the April live cattle contract added 37.5 cents to close at 118.77.5. The June up 25 cents to close at 118.92 and a half. And in feeder cattle, the April contract unchanged today to close at 139.42 and a half. The May up 42 and a half cents to close at 145.10. In the lean hog market, mixed trade today as the April contract closed 80 cents higher to end at 95.05. The May 52 and a half cents lower to close at 94.40. And in dairy today, class three milk futures, the April contract shedding 20 cents to close at 16.82. The May down 22 cents to close at 17.56. Without further ado, Ashton, let's Let's kick it over to our discussion with Naomi Bloom and Elaine Cub. Well, for today's hashtag Market Monday episode, we're doing something a little different today for our four-year anniversary. It was four years ago, not quite to the day, that we had both Elaine Cub, author of Mastering the Grain Markets, and Naomi Bloom of Total Farm. Our marketing on to join us, our very first guests. And ladies, we've brought you back today to do something a little different. We're going to do a market discussion roundtable, if you will. But before we get to that, first of all, thank you both so much for coming on today. And over the past four years, you both have been very frequent guests on the podcast. So I certainly appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having us. So I will start here with a little bit more about each of your backgrounds, because I remember very vividly, actually, um, each of you sharing your backgrounds, because you both obviously work in the ag analysis and brokerage field. But you guys have some very interesting stories uh, that that led you here, I suppose you could say. Elaine, let's start with you. You have a master's degree. You have an undergraduate degree in engineering, if I'm not mistaken. But tell us how all of those things transpired and eventually got you into the ag uh, analysis space. Yeah, that's right, Delaney. And this is this is such a treat because, you know, I don't know Naomi's origin story, right? This is I'm excited to hear hers. And I would also say that this is maybe a good opportunity for everybody to go back and listen to the deep cuts of the early Ag News Daily, right? You could go back to your um to the to all the collection that you have in your podcasting app. So so maybe I'll just give you the short version. If people want the longer version, they can go back to an episode from four years ago. But um, anyway, I, I grew up on a farm and and as you mentioned, I went to business school and wanted to get into finance and such. And I don't know if somebody just said, Elaine, why don't you trade commodities? And it was it was such a brilliant idea because I, I like agriculture and I like uh, tangible commodities and I like being able to apply mathematics and statistics to a market. Uh, so it, it just was such a good fit. And uh, I have been working in the space ever since. Um, writing a column for DTN, uh, wrote a book, as you mentioned, have been a broker, uh, do some farming. I don't know, just sort of a jack of all trades, renaissance woman in the agriculture world, let's say. 
That's a good way to put it. You do a lot of different things all the time and you do some stone artwork now and then. It just always <laughs> amazes me the things that you've got cooking, Elaine. Well, now, now, now you have to talk to Naomi about her rock band. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. So Naomi, you, um, I, the origin story that I remember from you is the dog food industry yeah. that your family was in for a long time, yep. but I don't remember how that transpired into you getting into commodities. Well, it was a, a dramatic price swing that really affected our family business. So the story, uh, growing up, I, I grew up in Cambridge, Wisconsin, just outside of Madison, and it's a rural community. Most of my friends came from farm families, and so my dad and my grandpa, we we had this dry dog food business in the backyard, like before dog food and the pet industry is the billion-dollar industry that it is now. And so we would um, make the dog food and buy the corn and soybeans that went into the dog food from my grandpa's brothers. So my great uncles lived just a quarter mile down the road and they had this huge grain elevator and they also farmed. So it was cool. Growing up, I got to see my great uncle's farm and then my friend's farm and then my dad and grandpa, you know, make a product with commodities that they had to turn around and sell. And so it was when I was in college at my, getting my undergrad at Platteville, I was in my ag classes and we were talking about commodity marketing and I went home for a weekend and that was the first time that the price of corn, like 1995-96, had gone from $2 all the way up to $5 and it just, the bottom line, it affected our family business because my dad wasn't prepared to have to buy higher priced corn and soybeans and so when I went back to school, my friends were all, you know, having similar conversations, but their parents farmed and so their parents sold the corn at $2 and now the price is $5. And so it was very eye-opening what it does to a family business. So that's how I got into commodities um, and, and just trying to help farm families navigate through those volatile swings, like what we saw this past year, because it can, it can make or break a uh, family business. So that's my background. Yeah, it certainly can, as you mentioned there, make or break a business. And since you led into that to start, let's talk a little bit about the corn and soybean markets both because they obviously have a pretty direct impact on livestock producers' livelihood. Elaine, you are a livestock producer yourself, do some uh, cow-calf operation up there. You farm with your dad, as you've mentioned. Tell us, what's the outlook right now for beef producers? Is this a time where they can make money with corn being at these levels? Uh, it, it sort of pencils out. The feedlots are in, are sort of on the cusp of penciling out or not penciling out. And and honestly, it all comes back to whether or not they can get the packers to share the profitability. The packing side is extremely profitable right now. If you go to the grocery store and see ground beef at five bucks a pound, there is definitely a willingness from the consumers to go to the grocery store and pay for beef, but it's not necessarily getting paid back to the feedlots. Um, in the cow-calf space, you know, last week, futures kind of fell apart for no particularly good reason, maybe just low volume of trade. But actually, you know, when you're looking at, at the uh, that October time frame at 145 or above, that's that's probably profitable for a cow calf operation, maybe $150 a head. Not huge money in in the cow space right now, but it seems like everybody is penciling out now. Naomi may have a different perspective from the dairy cow side of things. Yeah, well, I agree with everything that you said um, from the cattle side. With the with the dairy industry, you know that marketplace has been so volatile. Also, with milk right now kind of staying stable between seventeen dollars and eighteen dollars, and and that's above break even for a lot of producers. But we're still dealing with the 
aftermath of the of course, the COVID situation and then the farm to food family program that was out there because that really helped with the cheese demand. So with um, the milk right now, our production though still overall is is huge. It's it's getting smaller and trending lower. But the bigger thing with the dairies here in Wisconsin is that we've already been told that there may not be enough soybean, soybean meal available in the summer. And some of the smaller milling facilities around where I live in Wisconsin have told their dairy clients sorry, we can't guarantee that we can deliver it to you. So down the road, I'm thinking milk production may start to actually work lower because these uh, dairy cows are not going to be getting the amazing nutritious diets that they give, which has really impacted this bountiful milk production number. So I'm very curious to see where summer months go in terms of, of milk production. Naomi, tell me a little bit more about why they're anticipating soybean meal to be unavailable in your neck of the woods? Is it because a lot of it is going to China or we just simply don't have it in reserves? Well, so where I live on Wisconsin on the eastern side of the state, um, and it is prime dairy country. Like these are the big dairies are all around me. And and I think most producers sold their beans at harvest because it was a great price. And there are some that held some back, but I think most of it has gone. And so where, where I live, uh, the beans go to Milwaukee and they can go out the Great Lakes. There's been a lot of demand for that that way. Otherwise, in general, um, just the different processing facilities around here. So um, we had a good year last year for production, for everything. Wisconsin was one of the lucky places where we finally had the right combination of weather. So I think it's more that the producers sold their beans and, and there was a lot more corn planted around here last year too. But I I'm not sure that goes also in Northwest Iowa, we've heard similar things where the processing plants say, you have to bring us soybeans and then we will turn around and guarantee you soybean meal to deliver back. So I think as a as Midwestern states are going, we are low on product. I, I think that's the truth. Wow. Say, Naomi, do you know, like what sort of substitutes are there? You know, what would a dairy operation do if you can't get soybean milk? Can you just feed more corn or, or what do you do? Um, I know that they use a lot of cottonseed and mm. I know that they do um, other types of creative um, rationing. So here's an interesting part of where I live. Also, there's a big um, KT birdseed facility near us. So we actually grow Milo up here um, and, and different types of um, I don't, whatever you put in birdseed. I mean, you know, I go into the to the field like um, uh, I can't remember what one of those was called, but I'm like, what millet. the heck is growing in that field? <laughs> Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Millet. That's the one. But you know, um, <laughs> China's buying all this Milo too. You know, every right. feed grain that is available on the global market, China's buying all of that up as well. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, it is. And that, you know, the sorghum export sales, you know, they have been strong this past year. And, you know, we're seeing more sorghum potentially being grown in, in the southwestern plains. So it's this is year is just so exciting. It's so nice to talk about positive things in the market and just the huge dynamics that are not just one commodity limited. It is every commodity has a story to tell. And some of the stories are interwoven. And it's just 
exciting time right now for agriculture. Mm -hmm. It certainly is. And let's talk a little bit more about Chinese demand because I think it was on Twitter. I saw this thread. I don't remember who shared it with us, but of course we saw four export sales last week of U.S. corn heading to China. But I was reading through this thread and gosh, I wish I could remember who who tweeted this, but basically they were asserting that The amount of corn and sorghum and milo and all these products that China has bought are physically not going to be able to be shipped before the end of this marketing year. So they're like, well, it's a good thing that China is showing up and purchasing. They're not going to be able to actually buy these things. The money is not going to be there, et cetera. Uh, What's your take on all this? Are we going to be able to see products actually ship, get to China? And why haven't we seen a reaction in the corn market, especially when we saw four days of really strong sales. Well, I have a strong opinion on this. Um, with the Chinese purchases last week, I think the first two days of it was expected from the standpoint of it had been rumored about. Um, the last the, the last two days of the purchases, I thought, yeah, that's fishy that we're not rallying on it. But when you look at the total corn now that has been purchased on paper, we are pretty much at the USDA expectations. So for exports, that's um, looking at like two points, I think it's 2.4 billion bushels for corn to be exported. So the market, I think, is thinking, all right, we, we met the goal. Does the USDA need to increase this demand or not? And as far as the inspections go, I think we're getting close to 50% of that corn has actually left the country. So yeah, we still need to move um, about a billion bushels of corn yet. But my opinion, and talking with another person from ADM, they said it's it's possible. They can do it. And they weren't concerned about it. And we still have, what, five, six months left in the marketing year to make that happen. So it's something to watch, something to be concerned about. But at the same time, I, I think we can get it done. But I think the market maybe wants to see more proof of the pudding, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Elaine, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. Logistically, I don't think it's a problem to, to physically get those moved out of the ports. Um, but to your point, Delaney, about the money, even that also seems possible when you think back to China's phase one agreement, right? They probably have, well, I, I mean, I don't know what the Communist Party does, but they, the assumption was that they have set aside money with the expectation of spending spending a certain amount of money on U.S. agricultural products. So uh, from a payment perspective, I don't see a problem with it there either. All right. Well, the last thing then that I wanted to touch on with each of you, because I'm sure you've each got your own opinions on this, and uh, we've got two big reports coming up here in just over a week now, quarterly grain stocks and the prospective plantings report. What do you think we're going to see the USDA put out here? Are we going to have any surprises on that report? Well, this is Elaine, and I'll just sort of do the really obvious thing of talking about the dry weather and the potential for very fast planting or Mm -hmm. for the fact that a farmer looking on March 1st when he's responding, he or she is responding to a prospective planting survey is not going to see any, again, logistical reason why they would need to change intentions. Um, Soybeans are more attractive from a profitability or price perspective, but I think most farmers maintain their 50-50 rotations or whatever their rotations are and aren't aren't wildly swayed by the price on March 1st. So uh, I think that probably the baseline expectations for 92 million acres of corn and 90 million acres of soybeans or whatever, whatever it is these days, I think that's fairly likely to show up in that prospective plantings report. 
Yep, and I, I agree with that. And even if it goes to 93 million acres planted of corn, and that's been two um, different private forecasters have come out with like a 93-ish number already this week. If you have 93 million acres and you assume all of the previous USDA data is true, then the ending stocks would grow to just over 1.7 billion bushels from the 1.5 number that we have right now. But here's the other thought is that what if we start to see the old crop ending stocks of corn get smaller. There's some who in the industry think that it's not 1.5, it's 1.2. Now, if those things come to fruition, then you have a situation where our ending stocks on 93 million acres wouldn't be 1.7 billion bushels. It would be still less than where we are right now. And that data that I'm spitting out at you is assuming this USDA outlook yield number of 179.5. So with 93 million acres, we still have to watch weather this summer because it's so critical to the bottom line for ending stocks. And I don't think soybeans can afford to not have 90 million acres planted. Uh, uh, the, the ending stock situation there is just so tight. So I'm. it'll be interesting to see whatever they print next week. And we'll want to keep an eye on the quarterly stocks number two. But the bottom line is that we need all the acres we can get and we need to have perfect weather. Otherwise, we're going to have dramatic price explosion higher this summer. Amy, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. You teed me nicely into my last question because those are a lot of factors that have to align up just so to even remain, let's just say, you know, neutral in a neutral place or or in a position where we're not struggling to meet the demand we have. Weather is a hard thing to predict. You know, I, I don't think I'm going to sit here and say we're going to have a dry season, we're going to have a wet season. Nobody really knows, but I think to not have any sort of weather concerns this summer is probably unlikely. What do we see? What do you see happening if the stars don't align? We don't see perfect weather this year and we don't see record high yields or record plantings like uh, USDA is forecasting. Well, the, the stars are currently not aligned. If you look in the Western Corn Belt, right, there is right. severe drought, exceptional mm-hmm. drought in, in some portions of the fringe part of the Western corn, well, but, you know, just drought, plain old drought in serious majority portions of the heart of the Western Corn Belt, including Western Iowa. So uh, stars are not presently aligned. And I honestly haven't seen an updated outlook for what the La Nina scenario is expected to be in sort of the May, June, July, June, July timeframe. Do either of you have that outlook? Um, well, I was in South Dakota last week and they had a meteorologist there um, where I was presenting and the outlook is for warm and dry for spring and summer, mm-hmm. both as far as temperatures and Midwest. Um, I can't remember what she said about the specific La Nina details on how that affects things, but the bottom line was it's not going to be perfect for growing crops. Yeah. And Laura yeah. Edwards, she always has very good producer focused forecasts. So that's good. To, or I mean, that's not good to hear, but I believe her when she says that. We have awesome. Awesome. Yep. Yep. I agree. I've heard some similar things. I uh, read a lot of Eric Snodgrass's commentary and mm-hmm. he's pointing to hot and dry as well. So, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe we're going to have a perfect growing season. We never seem to have those. Um, but this year is definitely going to be interesting. Elaine and Naomi, thank you so much for coming on today to celebrate four years with us. We certainly appreciate it. Before I let each of you go, Elaine, how can folks get in touch with you, ask you questions, read your book if they've got questions? 
Sure, they can look for the book Mastering the Grain Markets, or you can find me on Twitter, Elaine Cub. Cub is spelled with a K. And Delaney, congratulations on your four years. This is amazing. I'm really glad that you had us here to celebrate this. Thank you. And Naomi, before I let you go, uh, how can folks get in touch with you? Yeah, just uh, go ahead and contact me via Twitter. It's at Naomi Bloom. Bloom is spelled B-L-O-H-M. Or give me a call at 800-334-9779 and ask for Naomi. And yeah, Delaney, it's a big deal. Four years is a huge deal. Congratulations. You have worked hard and you deserve everything you have. Well, thank you, ladies, again, for coming on today. And thanks for being longtime guests of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Well, again, a big thank you to Elaine and Naomi for coming on and celebrating four years with us. Ashton, certainly exciting. The podcast has obviously had many changes and twists, and we've learned a lot over the last four years. That's for sure. Well, Delaney, I've also learned a lot just being here within the past couple of months. We're I'm I'm celebrating a year with you guys, you know, here in a couple of weeks. But you know, just a quick National Ag Week fact coming at you real quick. Over three hundred and eighty thousand men are working as farmers and ranchers, and there's almost fifty-two thousand women. Not quite 52,000, but almost there. And so being able to just work with, you know, women like you and Elaine and Naomi, it's just been an eye-opening experience. And I think that they had some really insightful words. And I just loved listening to you guys play off of one another. And I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. Yeah, it was certainly fun, Ash. And we're going to have to do that again real soon. But folks, if you've missed on any missed out on any of our past four years worth of episodes. I calculated it. It's only almost a thousand episodes for me. Just think about how many hours of my life that has been podcasting Ashton. But folks, if you want to listen back on any of those past episodes, you can do that. Find us at agnewsdaily.com. With that, Ashton, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.